Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen, who has just returned uh, from the Munich Security Conference and travels in Poland. Uh, And he's here uh, with me today for a special edition of Shield of the Republic. Elliot, welcome back. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Just, I guess, to complete the introductions, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins Dice and the uh, Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS. Eric, let me, um, I mean, we can, I'm happy to talk about travels and impressions, but I, could I just start with a really big question, which is, I think this is the watershed event of the post-Cold War period. That is to say, you know, putting bookends on historical periods is always a somewhat arbitrary exercise, but, but this feels to me to be something that is truly big. And it really will be a a bookend in a way that 2014, you know, the uh, Russian seizure of Crimea, the Georgia war, uh, and so on were not. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. This is something that we haven't seen uh, in a very long time, a major interstate war and a war that's a, a war of aggression without any question. Uh, violation of the UN Charter, of the Helsinki Final Act, of any number of other agreements which Russia is either signed on to as Russia or is the uh, successor state to the Soviet Union uh, for implementation. And it is, I think, a very big event. Yeah. I find myself looking at my bookshelf and uh, there are two fat volumes by Zara Steiner um, Mm -hmm. in the 20s and 30s. I have them in my life. I'm looking at them too, actually. Well, that's that's why, you know, you and I get along so well. Uh, One first one was called The Lights That Failed. And then the the second one's called The Triumph of the Dark. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I don't think this is 1938 or 39, but there are some there are some similarities. I mean, this is it's, you know, to to everything you said that I would add that there's a level of brutality. This is a war of conquest. It is exceptionally brutal and characterized by truly incredible levels of deceit and duplicity. And uh, it really does have the potential to change the international system. As things stand now, and as we record this, we're several days into this war, you know, you're very rarely optimistic. Uh, Just how pessimistic are you? Well, I think what we're seeing is, uh, in as much as one can tell, because as, as you know, first reports are always wrong and uh, the fog of war is uh, difficult to penetrate and particularly when you've got one adversary that is very adept um, at information warfare and using social media. It does appear that the Ukrainians are are putting up more of a fight and giving, uh, you know, the Russians a tougher time uh, than I think that they anticipated. Uh, But it's very hard to see how how they can withstand, um, you know, this onslaught. Although I do think the Russians may be coming to the bottom of their magazine of uh, precision-guided munitions, but that only makes makes the point you made earlier uh, more salient, which is the uh, violence and brutality of this are likely to increase as they rely on on less precise weapons to carry this forward, and as they're frustrated by resistance that they are uh, encountering from the Ukrainian military, and I think uh, increasingly that they'll be encountering from Ukrainian citizens who are reasonably well-armed with light arms. So uh, 
you know, continuing the occupation, I, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge the Russians face going forward once they actually establish some control over the major urban areas, although that will be a bloody fight, I think. As you know, urban warfare is particularly treacherous. And I, I think what we may end up seeing, I, I hope not because of the human costs, but I think we may see in Kharkiv and, uh, and Kiev, you know, a replay of what we saw the Russians do in Grozny 20 or some years ago, which would be really horrific. That's, I suppose, the first thing that we should say at the outset of our discussion, that this is a human tragedy on a monumental scale, and our, our thoughts are de definitely with the Ukrainians. And it's a war crime. It's a war crime, because it is, as you oh, you said, it's a war of conquest and a war in a, a, of aggression. Uh, and we should not forget that Putin and all the people who are carrying this out, Defense Minister Shoigu, the Chief of the General Staff, Garasimov, they're all war criminals. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that. You know, this is... There are going to be many consequences, I believe, of this. But what, one of them, it does seem to me, is that for quite some time, Russia is really going to be a pariah state. And it should be. And it should be. Now, that's a somewhat intangible outcome in some ways. I mean, there are various sanctions and, and, and so on and so forth. But I think uh, that actually understates the larger impact this is going to have on Russia's ability to play any role in the world and the way in which all of its neighbors, with the possible exception of China, view it and deal with it. I have to say, I'll, you know, um, I want, would like to give a couple little reports on uh, some of the things I heard and saw. One of the things that I will say that was encouraging about the Munich Security Conference, uh, which you and I used to go to is with congressional delegation, the congressional delegation led by John McCain uh, or CODEL in the jargon that they use, the, the congressional delegation referred to themselves as CODEL McCain, and they made a point of that. Uh, which, you know, is a, at first, it's a wonderful tribute to a great American, but it said something. And I think it was bipartisan. It was firm. Uh, and that was quite encouraging, given that, you know, the previous president was basically standing up for Vladimir Putin. I think on the other, and the other thing I would say is on the whole, the other delegates, particularly the Europeans, were fairly tough. And I think they've only gotten tougher since the onslaught, which occurred after the Munich Security Conference uh, was over. You know, was, Zelensky gave a speech which was passionate, courageous, not always entirely coherent, but still full of passion for his country. He got two standing ovations, um, which is not the usual thing. And they were from everybody. And of course, the Russians, for the first time in a while, were no-shows. And the timing of this, I think, was not accidental. I mean, the war began after both the end of the Beijing Olympics, so as not to embarrass Putin's silent partner in this, Xi Jinping, but also to you know, not embarrass the Germans and the Europeans in the hope that maybe they could keep them off sides with us. And um, I think they've usually underestimated NATO and European unity and uh, we hugely underestimated the resistance in Ukraine. And I would say the longer this is a protracted conflict, uh, the worse it is for Putin. And by the way, on Zelensky, I would say he's given a number of actually very moving and powerful speeches, including one in Russian to the Russian people. So in terms of rising to the occasion, I think actually Zelensky has, you know, done honor to himself uh, in almost equal terms to the dishonor that Putin and his colleagues have brought to Russia. What do you think of the Biden administration's handling of this? Well, I think the sanctions, uh, you know, I understand the argument that they're making in terms of spooning out the sanctions uh, in a measured way. But uh, I think, you know, it's always been a little bit behind the curve. I think it's been a little 
uh, late and, uh, you know, a little short. Now, some of this is because of pressure from the allies, for instance, on, you know, unplugging uh, Russia from uh, the SWIFT s- uh, system of bank notifications. But I think that the problem is that when you're dealing with someone like Putin, he tends to interpret these things not as expert efforts at escalation control, but rather as indications of weakness and lack of will. And, and therefore, I think it only encourages him. I mean, in general, I give them very good marks for their alliance management. In particular, you know, the effort that Secretary Blinken has made. I think he's, you know, his effort to be constantly out there working uh, with the allies has been exemplary, honestly. Uh, but I think on the sanctions side, particularly after, before the fact, advertising these, you know, strong crippling sanctions, spooning them out in sort of bite-sized doses, I think has been a mistake. But I'd be interested in your view of that. Yeah, I think on the whole, they've been uh, pretty good. I would have, on on the sanctions, you know, my, my feeling is, well, I guess a couple of things. First, you know, sanctions can have a long-term effect in debilitating a country, particularly if they are really robust. And I, I do hope we'll go for the kicking them out of SWIFT, which I think would really do some serious damage to them. On the other hand, I suppose I also tend to believe that we have used the sanctions so much as a tool of foreign policy. It's it's like the doctor who keeps on prescribing antibiotics and, you know, before you know it, the bacteria build up a resistance to them. And and I, there's something of that there. Plus, the, the Russians do have the Chinese at their back. And the, the Chinese, I suspect, are not entirely happy about this, but they're not going to turn against the Russians. What I would have liked to have seen more of, and there may be some a lot of this going on behind the scenes that I'm simply unaware of, is a real commitment to arming the Ukrainians. I think that's really the uh, the, the the most important thing. You know, we don't want to send troops over there. One hates to say that, but ultimately that would not be a good idea, I believe, to really try to intervene directly in the conflict. And I don't think we can actually do it in time to do what we need to do. But we most definitely can provide anti-tank weapons, anti-air weapons, body armor, intelligence. And, and that is really, I think, the most, uh, that's really one of the most important things that we can do. And I, I sincerely hope that there's more of that going on behind the scenes. The other thing which I wanted to to mention, Eric, was that I, I do think the administration did a brilliant job of leaking information. Uh, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Uh, the way in which they kept on disclosing the Russian plays before they made them, that struck me as really, really well done. The points you make about the sanctions being overused is, of course, right. But I do think we need to bear in mind a couple of things about sanctions. One is the long-term economic and some short-term economic effects that they can have, obviously dropping, dropping down the ruble, the Russian stock market, et cetera, which can impose some costs. But there's also a symbol here. I mean, we talked at the beginning of this about uh, the fact that these people are war criminals and, and Russia's become, you know, a rogue or pariah state. We have to make the point that uh, the West is not going to allow these people to park their ill-gotten gains in London, Paris, and elsewhere. Their assets need to be seized. We need to make it impossible for them to travel except maybe to China or North Korea. Uh, We need to kick their kids out of elite boarding uh, schools and universities in Europe and the United States in order to enforce the pariah status. Now, not just say they're pariahs, but actually make them pariahs. 
because that's the only way you're going to get any kind of pressure in the Russian system to get Putin to pull pull this back. So I think the sanctions, and that, that's what I think has been missing, frankly, from some of the sanctions. It's just been one or two people, Sergei Ivanov, Sergei Ivanov's son. There, there's a whole panoply of folks, uh, including Putin. They haven't gone after Putin's assets personally. That's what I think has been missing from the sanctions part of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Look, I'm, there's almost no measure uh, that you could suggest where I would say, don't do it. I would, I would say, go ahead, let's try that one too. Throw the, let's throw the kitchen sink at them. And I do like the idea of reinforcing the pariah status, but it seems to me that leads to a different question, which is what's the theory of victory here? And if the theory of victory is that the oligarchs and you know, people with a lot of money in the stock market will somehow compel Putin to change his mind. I don't believe it because I think Putin really is in charge. He's been, it's quite striking how he's been demonstrating that with these staged consultations in the Kremlin where everybody looks like a, a 19th century schoolboy getting ready to be whipped by the headmaster. You know, and I, it's, it is an effective autocracy for the moment. So you either, I think, have to be thinking, one of two things. One, the, the theory of victory is that at some point people decide to get rid of him uh, and force him out. That probably won't be the oligarchs. That would probably be other people from the, the power ministries, if you will, or, or from the military. Or that you put so much stress on the system that it begins to collapse. Now, those are both, you know, th- those are, that's a kind of an escalation of your operational objective. But um, but the truth is, as we think about our, our theory of victory, that, that really, I think, is it. Because it's inconceivable to me that without things really falling apart or without Putin himself being deposed, that you're, the Russians are going to say, OK, ceasefire. We've decided we're going to go back to, uh, to where we were at the start of this or maybe even further. Well, no, I largely uh, agree with that. You know, I think it's hard to imagine anybody other than Putin being able to manage this system. And clearly not everybody in the system has the same obsessions that Putin has. You know, you talked about the really extraordinary scene of uh, him meeting. It was obviously tape recorded. It wasn't live, as they had initially said. But this meeting of the Russian Security Council, I think, was a little bit unusual in the sense that it's something you would more associate with, you know, Saddam Hussein's uh, Revolutionary Command Council in Iraq or a meeting of the Politburo of the North Korean, you know, uh, Workers' Party uh, with Kim Jong-un. It was clearly meant, I think, to bring everybody in the power ministries, as you were just saying, into alignment with his objectives, which suggests that they weren't really there. I mean, this was a very public way of making people pledge their fealty to him and accepting collective responsibility for the decision if anything goes wrong. Uh, in other words, he's not going to bear the blame for this if you know you start getting uh, you know Russian boys coming home uh, in body bags or apparently urns since they've moved mobile cr- uh, crematoria up to the uh, borders of of Ukraine because obviously he is worried about casualties. I mean, th- there are two things you know in terms of your comment about the theory of victory. There are two things that if you want to try and get him to change, and he may not, uh, you're right, because I think, uh, frankly, at this point, it's the autumn of the patriarch. He is so completely isolated and you know lost in his own uh, role as the autocrat that I don't think we're going to persuade him to change course. But the two things he does 
fear and you know worry about are public perceptions in Russia of him. I think he recognizes more than we do that there's a brittleness to his regime. So public revelations of his ill-gotten gains, as Navalny did with the documentary about his billion-dollar palace in Sochi, that ends you up in jail or someone trying to put Novichok on your underwear in an attempt to kill you. Um, casualties in the war. That's why he killed Boris Nemtsov, um, who was uh, making a documentary about the unreported casualties from the ongoing war in the Donbass. So those are the things that he holds a value that you can manipulate from the outside. But more broadly, you know, trying to bring pressure from, as you say, the people who hold the power ministries, I think there is some hope of that because clearly there were some people who weren't happy with this decision, think it was a mistake. And I think, you know, in some ways, although it may take a while, he may have begun the process of the unraveling of the Putin system. Uh, It may take a decade. It took a decade from the time the Soviets went into Afghanistan until the regime collapsed. Uh, But I think that may be one of the inflection points that uh, you mentioned at the outset that we're at. You know, I would certainly like to think that that's the case. And I I suspect that it it probably is. But a lot of this does take us right to the heart of who Putin really is. Uh, I've been very struck in conversations first here, then in Munich, even a little bit in Warsaw, between really two very different interpretations of Putin's behavior. Now, the first is rational calculator, chess grandmaster, very you know careful and measured, knows what his objectives are uh, in terms of not only crippling Ukraine, but also putting a branch into the uh, spokes of NATO's wheels. I mean, that Putin is clever calculator, and a lot of prominent people have articulated that view. And then I've, there's the other view, which for whatever it's worth, I had, which is, no, that's not the right way to understand it. The right way to understand is this guy's almost 70 years old. He has held power for 20 years. He's been physically isolated for two years. We know that his circle is extremely small, like, you know, three or four guys who uh, roughly his age with his background, who is now thinking about his legacy in a big way, who has somewhat delusional views of what Ukraine is and could be. Also, I would say delusional views of his place in Russia's history. And so we're not really dealing with a particularly rational decision maker or one who's one who may be getting more erratic. And I'll, uh, at the risk of plugging my next book, I'll, I'll say it's, it really is all in Shakespeare, you know. If you look at Richard III, for the first three acts of the play, Richard III, who is clearly a villain, is he, you know, he's manipulative, he's deceitful, he's cunning, he's indirect, he's killing people left and right, but he's doing it adroitly. When he when he gets when you get to Act Four and he's been crowned and he commits the really biggest crime, which is the murder of his nephews in the tower, he just turns to one of his subordinates and says, "I want the bastards dead." In other words, he, he's no longer bothering to conceal who he is or what he is, and he's getting more and more paranoid and irrational. And I have to say that I, I've thought about that play a lot in the last few weeks, saying that that really, that, that to me captures what's happening to the personality. So that's a kind of a long disquisition on Putin's psychology. What's your take? If you look at the videotape, you know, it's really quite striking, the smirks the relish with which he humiliated Sergei Narishkin, the head of the external 
Intelligence Service, a former KGB colleague of his who's been running the railroads for year and has become years in Russia and has become you know fabulously wealthy. But as you say, Narishkin was you know his eyes were bulging, his you know the sweat was pouring off his stammering for, forehead. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was, and he blurted out the wrong talking points. You know, he said, "Oh yes, you know Vladimir Vladimirovich, I agree." You know, we should annex, you know, the Donbass. And he says, no, we're not talking about Sergei. Stop, talk, you know, stop stammering, you know, speak directly. You know, we're not talking about annexation. We're talking about recognition of their independence. You know, you fool. That's next week's talking point, you know. <laughs> um, and that could have been edited out because we know this was videotaped. We know from the metadata and from the fact that uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister's watch was visible and it was, you know, hours earlier than the broadcast. They could have edited that out. They didn't. And that, you know, I would say was essentially by, you know, by intent. It's interesting, you know, our French friends and colleagues who you and I remain in touch with from our days of government service have been talking among themselves about uh, the impressions that Macron came back with from his meeting, uh, meeting at the ridiculously long table in the Kremlin with Putin and, and clearly came away with the impression that his mental state had sort of deteriorated. And the way that the the Security Council meeting was set up, I mean, it was not just Macron and Schultz who were subjected to the long table, right? That one could argue is, you know, they refused to take COVID tests because they didn't want the Russians to have their DNA, et cetera. So maybe you could make an argument, well... But, but Lavrov... Lavrov, exactly. Lavrov, who was... Who is the most loyal flunky you can imagine? Yeah. Somebody who has no role in actually doing anything, but is a completely loyal flunky. A completely loyal flunky who's become fabulously rich. He's probably the richest foreign minister in the world. Yeah, I mean, he was made to sit at the long table, you know, as well. You know, all of this suggests, you know, a level of deep, deep paranoia. And the fact that they're not even, you know, they're not even letting protests go on. They're arresting people immediately. They've arrested, you know, at this point, nearly 2,000 people. I'm sure it'll be more by the time this podcast is, is you know, up on, on the net. And it tells you that there's a concern about fragil- the fragility of the regime, which I think we underestimate. I, you know, I, I, I tend to think so myself, but uh, you're the one who was stationed there um, and who, who I think follows it particularly closely. Talk talk to me about where do you see the fragility of the regime? And just to sharpen it up a little bit, let me throw out the, the, the idea that, yeah, they've got all kinds of problems, but basically one of the uh, awful developments of the last 20 or 30 years is that the technology of repression around the world has gotten a lot better. You know, facial recognition software, computer databases, um, all that sort of thing. So the bad guys have sets of tools which they didn't really have available even during the heyday of totalitarianism. And you can you can use that to crush opposition much more efficiently. And you know, one can argue that's the story of the Iranians. It's a, certainly the story of the Chinese. And why couldn't it be true of the Russians as well? Could be. Um, I mean, the, the sources of fragility, I think, are uh, his, his popularity is definitely down uh, in polling. Polling in a country like Russia, of course, is you know, somewhat problematic, but it's way down from the heights after Crimea. And I think one reason, you know, he may have had false optimism about uh, the likelihood that he could pull this off and be successful was that he had this big burst of 
nationalistic support that came after the seizure of Crimea. That I think he may have misinterpreted, um, but his poll numbers are way down now. The country's economic situation has been relatively stagnant for the last uh, you know, six, seven years. COVID is ravaging the, the country. And even though they have a vaccine um, indigenously developed, the rate of uptake in Russia is extremely low. And one reason is nobody you know, trusts the government. No one trusts the vaccine. And so COVID is, is a huge problem. It's one of the reasons why he's staying so isolated, um, although he's been vaccinated. And I'm willing to bet you that it wasn't Sputnik that he got vaccinated with, but I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe that's why he's so worried about it, because it's not an effective vaccine compared to the Western vaccines. So some of the Polish analysts were speculating that he may not be vaccinated at all for some reason. They, they had actually, there, there were a number of rumors that they had, including that there may be various illnesses and, and whatnot. But I guess, you know, it still begs the question, what's the, the mechanism that, you know, would bring him down or bring the regime down? I, you know, I suppose one can say, you never know until it happens. The comfort, if that's the right word that one can take, is that the, the history of Russia is a history of autocracy that, you know, periodically gets into an aggressive war, um, and sometimes not even an aggressive war, and all of a sudden that shakes the regime to its foundations. You know, that, that does happen in some measure after the, uh, the Crimean War in the 1850s. It certainly happened that the the Russo-Japanese War, World War One, obviously, right? Uh, Afghanistan. So you know, and he, I'm sure he's aware of that. So there may just be forces at work that aren't visible. There are things, there are some signs. So apparently, um, uh, the uh, whatever it is, the Association of Mothers of Soldiers has begun reporting that uh, the conscripts. Are now, conscripts are now being brought to the border and forced to sign uh, contracts to serve as voluntary soldiers. And what the Russians have tried to do is not send conscripts to Ukraine. Uh, but that, you know, that may be true in name only. And there may, and there, you know, there are other signs, um, other signs as well of that, that kind of thing. Yeah, there are some signs that some of the Ukrainian soldiers, I'm sorry, some of the Russian soldiers who've been captured by Ukrainian military forces have said they really didn't know why they were there, couldn't, didn't understand, you know, that they were supposed to be killing Ukrainians. I mean, so there's potential problems there. You know, I think there are problems, you know, among his own boyars, if you will, you know, the, the folks who are on that security council call, all of them have a lot of assets in the West. The kids are being educated in the West, et cetera. That stuff starts to disappear, you know, because of his obsession with Ukraine, you know, a lot can happen. Let's not forget that the plot against Mussolini in 1943 was orchestrated by his son-in-law, Count Chano. So you can't count, you know, on, you know, something not coming from inside the bosom of your own family. Uh, now, in this case, I don't mean, you know, his blood relatives, but clearly the group of KGB operatives with whom he has, you know, looted the country over the last 20 years, some of them may like the loot and may not like you know, the consequences of not being able to fly to their their yachts. And I'm not talking so much about, you know, Roman Abramovich, uh, whose yacht is sitting off St. Martin and ought to be seized by the Coast Guard, in my view. But, you know, some some of the others who control, um, as you say, the power ministries, the, you know, the power vertical, as they call it in Russia. 
let's talk uh, a little bit maybe about, we're only a few days into this, about Russian military performance, which is something we've both focused on over uh, over the years. Let, let me give you my first take on it. On the one hand, you know, it's quite impressive. They've got a lot of modern equipment. They are uh, clearly capable of moving large numbers of troops to, to different places, uh, orchestrating complex organiza- uh, operations. But I have to say, even from what we can tell over the first few days, there, there are, it seems to be a number of big question marks. The one is, you know, first of all, you have to stipulate they have huge advantages. So they can, you know, they can attack from the north, the south, and the east right. simultaneously. South, yeah. yeah. They they get to pick when it starts. Uh, they have, you know, tremendous advantage in terms of air power and all that. And yet... Cyber weapons. Uh, cyber weapons. And, you know, this is a place that they've been studying very, very closely and they've had penetrated and all that. Yep. And yet... You know, if you if you if you look at all that, you know that the first round of airstrikes does not seem to be. It wasn't like the Iraq War, right? Uh, in terms of the level of air effort, and right as we both know, that actually that that's not simple uh, to be able to orchestrate that. You you know your point about the supply of precision guided weapons. Uh, you do sort of have a sense that they've got a limited number of those. They have not been able to take down all the Ukrainian air defenses. They have not. Uh, they haven't even been able to chase the Ukrainian air force completely out of the skies. They've had some aircraft shot down. Apparently, they've had aircraft shot down. They've lost, a, they've lost some dogfights, man. And and you know, two, I guess two other things. One is they they've been able to penetrate very deeply, which is not surprising, but they haven't really gotten into close combat in many places in built up areas. And as when that's happened, actually they haven't, it's not clear that they've done nearly as well as they expected to. The other thing that has struck me about it is, you know, they've uh, adopted um, what they call battalion tactical groups, which, which are basically taking sort of the equivalent of a brigade's worth of firepower uh, long-range firepower, and putting a maneuver battalion of infantry, uh, reinforced infantry with it, as opposed to the, you know, you'd normally have two or three. And I think that's largely done to prevent themselves from having to use conscripts. And there again, if, you know, once you get into close combat in the city, you need, as we discovered in Iraq, you need lots of infantry and cities absorb large numbers of soldiers. So I it, you know, it seems to me that there are, um, we, that we, although, you know, we should respect their military potential and it's clear that they're a lot better than they were. We certainly have to give them that. It's not quite as positive a tale for them as some people would like to think. And look, I agree. And I think to some degree, uh, there's a little bit of an element of race against time here. So, you know, just before we came on, Putin said he was willing to talk to, you know, the Ukrainians to accept their surrender in in essence to, quote, spare the country additional bloodshed. But that does sort of betray that he'd like to wrap this up pretty quick. Um, I think one of the things that has surprised him and perhaps others uh, is that the Ukrainians are standing and fighting at all. I mean, I think if you believe, as he purports to believe, that Ukraine is barely a country and it's really part of Russia, you know, the 5,000-word essay he personally wrote, which clearly shows that during COVID he's got too much time on his hands, 
you would anticipate that, that you know the Russians would not be expecting this level of resistance. Uh, in fact, they would be expecting, as one of their ambassadors said, uh, I think the one at the UN, that they were going to be greeted, you know, greeted as liberators. Um, well, we know from our own experience that a lot of times that doesn't happen, and I think that could be, a, a, you know, shock to the uh, enlisted force, the, the, both the professional and the conscripts who are fighting for Russia in this struggle, but also to the leadership. And so every day that this goes on, every day that this looks like it's going to become more protracted, every day that suddenly they get the sense that maybe they really will be fighting the insurgency that people in the West have predicted, going to make this harder politically for Putin, no matter how much of an autocrat he is. I would add one other point. You know, it it took almost a decade after World War II uh, for the Soviet Union to completely pacify Ukraine uh, because there was guerrilla opposition, and not just in Ukraine, some in the Baltics as well. Putin's actually written about the uh, uh, that episode in Estonia because it apparently affected his father personally. So they're aware that this is, you know, uh, lurking out there as a potential. And I think it's it's going to be a, you know, an, an ongoing concern of theirs, the longer this goes, and the more it looks like it's moving, you know, in that, uh, in that direction. And this is going to be very hard for them to occupy and control Ukraine with the number of troops that they've got in terms of the troop to task requirement of an occupation in a country the size of Texas with 44 million people. I mean, you don't, you don't do, you don't do that with a hundred thousand troops. Well, and, and furthermore, the problems that they're going to begin to have with troop rotation and, and things like that, you know, the, I think the rule of thumb for us was for every soldier forward, you have at least two others back, one recovering from a tour of duty, the other getting ready to go. So I, I think they'll run into that. Unfortunately, the way that they We'll probably try to deal with that is with sort of paramilitary forces and, you know, the most horrifying news, which they may be leaking for psychological reasons, is that they're sending in the Chechens of Ramzan Kadyrov, who are, you know, cruel, murderous thugs. Well, they're Putin's. They're Putin's assassins. They're he's, they're they're the ones for that he's used for what you know his wet work, right. so, as they call. So it. you know, they, and they may hope to intimidate people, but I, you know, I tend to think. At, at this point, that's just going to engender more resistance and it's going to be horrible and ugly as long as we continue to feed it, which I think is is critical. Just one thing can I add to that, Elliot? He's also, uh, there are reports that they're sending in the Wagner Group, which is the you know sort of mercenary force that is run by Prigozhin, his caterer. And that may be another way that they do it, the paramilitaries, and it'll be these contract military groups that uh, like the Chechens, they, that won't help. I mean, that that will be something that will add more friction with the population. Well, also, the, I mean, the Wagner Group in particular, I mean, they, they got their clocks cleaned by us when they made the mistake of attacking an American outpost or two in Syria. The, uh, you know, I remember the they attacked a, a post at, at night, and uh, I think we had some AC-130s overhead yep. and killed about 300 of them. Yeah, I, uh, one of my former students commanded uh, one of those units. He said their motto was, "Don't run; you'll only die tired." Yeah, that was that was in February of 2018. They've also not done such a great job. They haven't acquitted themselves all that well in Libya uh, either, right? So, yeah, I I don't think that that's necessarily a long term solution. But, Elliot, could we talk about uh, his nuclear threats? That strikes me as a you know a topic that is worth us talking about a little bit. 
Yeah, that that is chilling. I mean, that you know, we think about when was the last time you really we really heard nuclear threats. It's been a while. I think it's it does bring home a fact that people have not wanted to think about too much, which is that for the Russians, n- nuclear weapons are uh, just another tool in the arsenal. Now, whether in the crunch they would act that way, I'm not so sure. It does. I think reinforce the need, which you have long preached, I might add, for the modernization of our own nuclear arsenal to include uh, our tactical nuclear arsenal. You know, we've we've gone. There are a number of areas where we've gone through a long technological and uh, conceptual drought, and thinking about nuclear weapons is is one of them. You're right, of course, and I I do think. I think even before this happened, the prospect of moving ahead with nuclear modernization was uh, pretty clearly going to be the direction I think that the administration was going to go in. I think whatever uh, efforts they ever contemplated about moving to a no first use doctrine, I think in light of the requirement we now have to reassure our NATO allies that our Article 5 guarantee is good, is likely to uh, completely evaporate, although they may continue to play games with some kind of formulation about nuclear weapons only being necessary to deal with existential threats, whatever that means. It's not clear that the new formulation will be really that uh, different from the older formulations. The polls, by the way, were very interested in talking about nuclear sharing. Uh, well, that's a, a you know very uh, important point. We already have you know nuclear sharing with other allies, and I see no reason why Polish F-16 pilots shouldn't be you know, trained uh, to fly nuclear missions. I think would send an important signal. It'll also be interesting to see whether the Biden administration, which had been flirting as part of its nuclear posture review, not just with doctrinal statements like no first use or sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter, deter nuclear weapons. But also with these lower yield options that were identified in the 2018 nuclear posture review, I think the W76-2 warhead that is a lower yield Trident warhead, I think is already in the force and I think that it will stay. I don't think they'll change that. I think there were a lot of people flirting with the idea of killing, bringing back a submarine-launched nuclear cruise missile. It'll be interesting to see what happens now, uh, because presumably you really want to have that capability to offset some of the Russian capabilities, the missile they built that violated the INF Treaty, for instance, but also their SS-26 Iskander uh, missiles that are placed in Kaliningrad and range parts of Europe and could, they're dual capable, so they could have nuclear warheads. I think you're going to want some kind of counter to that. And uh, we'll we'll see, uh, you know, what they do. You know, when you started our conversation today, you were saying that this is a very, very big inflection point. And I keep thinking about uh, the Korean War and the impact the Korean War had on um, a whole host of uh, of issues, but particularly issues in in national defense, notably including leading the United States to formally implement a document that had been uh, drafted in the aftermath of the first Soviet nuclear test in the fall of 1949, and then the fall of the nationalist regime in China and the triumph of Mao Zedong and the Communist Party in China, which was NSC 68, drafted by the person who our school is uh, named after, Paul Nitze. Uh, But it was only after June, I mean, the paper was presented to the National Security Council in April of 1950. It was only after June when the invasion of South Korea uh, is undertaken by uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, that 
all the recommendations are adopted for a very big buildup of conventional forces, a very big buildup of our nuclear force, and a tripling of defense spending. By the way, that that is the height of U.S. defense spending during the Cold War. It's like 14% of GDP, roughly three times the share of GDP, maybe a little more than that uh, uh, that we spend today. So is this that kind of inflection point, do you think? Are we going to see a very big Biden defense budget when they drop the budget in April? Or am I misreading it? You know, as always, it's uh, the right question to which uh, we can't really know the answer. I thought you were going to, I would say one other thing about NSC 68 and about the impact of Korea. It, it leads to obviously our commitment to that war, but it also leads to a huge buildup in Europe. And what, one of the reasons why this is a strategic inflection point, it seems to me, is because uh, we have been resolutely focusing on Asia. Uh, this administration, actually, a lot of continuity with the Trump administration. And there's some people in it who really, early on in this crisis, were wondering, well, do we really have to get engaged with Ukraine? I had a very interesting conversation in Munich with a very senior Australian official whom we both know and, and respect a lot, who said, you know, my country has only faced an existential crisis once. That was in 1942. And that was because the Asian security order broke down. And the Asian security order broke down because the European security order broke down. So in other words, these are linked. And I think that this is the big watershed that we have to cross, that whereas um, th there has been, I believe, a, a healthy strategic consensus uh, across the parties, uh, and certainly within the more expert community, that China poses a really major strategic challenge. But, but a lot of people had hoped that you could just kind of leave Europe on its right. own uh, while we dealt with China. Well, we no longer can. So I think, you know, I, I do think absolutely additional defense spending is called for. That, that there's no question. I think we'll probably get some. I don't know how much because there are a lot more competing domestic uh, uses than there were back in, in 1950. But I think the critical question is going to be how do we balance integrate um, the the need to be very active both in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. I agree. And, you know, I think when I co-chaired with Admiral Gary Ruffhead, the congressionally appointed commission that reviewed the 2018 Trump national defense strategy, one of the concerns we raised about it was it, it was essentially a one war strategy, um, which basically said, you know, we're going to, you know, win and fight in one theater if we have to, against these two near peers, and we're going to deter the other with nuclear weapons. And my fear always has been, in you know, a criticism we tried to articulate was, you know, you, you really are putting the president in the position with a one-war strategy of a no-war strategy, because essentially you then, you know, are telling the president when something happens, if you uh, try and fight, you know, a war in this theater, you know, you're going to be out of Schlitz everywhere else, you know, Mr. or Madam President. And, you know, therefore you're going to be at the mercy of some kind of opportunistic aggression by, you know, the other other near peer, assuming that they're not working in, you know, in tandem to begin with. So the ability, you know, the, the much maligned two-war standard, the ability to be able to, uh, you know, deter in both theaters, I think, is going to, you know, um, raise its ugly head again. And this is where it's going to drive, I think, the debate uh, about the defense budget and the strategy that the 
uh, Biden administration is going to have to deliver sometime, uh, you know, in the next couple of months. And it won't just be about, you know, what kind of resources you have and deterrent posture and all that. It'll be where do you invest policy energy, as it were? And the problem is going to be you have to invest it in both places. Right. And that's a demand on uh, the attention of senior leaders. And, and among other things, they just need to be better at managing that. So I I think we're we're coming to the end, Eric. Obviously, this you know we think about the people of Ukraine and uh, who are suffering completely unnecessarily and unjustly in this, and the courageous Russians who are raising their voices against this. Abs- absolutely, that that really takes a, a quite an extraordinary measure of courage, given that it's a, a brutal and lethal regime. You know, how do you think we're going to look back on this, say, five years from now? I hope we'll look back on it as the point at which the scales finally fell from people's eyes uh, and they realized that we have moved beyond the period of the so-called post-Cold War in which people thought we could create a cooperative security environment and incorporate a democratic Russia and a reforming China into the international order and make them responsible stakeholders. They both, in different ways, want to overturn the order. And if we want to see the order survive, I hope we'll look back and say this is the point at which people finally said, okay, uh, we have to pull up our socks and uh, defend the order. Well, let's hope that that's the case. And uh, Shield of the Republic will do its bit to help make that happen. Okay. Well, um, on a lighter note, uh, I think our copies of our friend Barry Strauss's book about Actium uh, are arriving soon. And uh, uh, just to tease the public, uh, we hope to have Barry on in a few weeks to talk about that uh, book with us and what it might teach us about the current somewhat somber and dark uh, situation to go back to Zara Steiner. I think that would be great. And uh, looking forward to our other historical sallies as well. Thanks, Elliot. See you soon. See ya.